Hi, I'm Fiona. And I'm Cam. And you're listening to the Over the Fence podcast by Farmers for Climate Action. This podcast is an opportunity to look over the fence and see what people and communities across rural and regional Australia are doing in the face of climate change. By sharing experience and skills, we can help create even stronger communities and regions. Today, we're talking to Judy Brewer. Judy's a farmer, and she's had a long history of involvement in rural and regional community organisations, including Australian Women in Agriculture, Landcare, the National Party, and as the National President of the Australian Women's Refugee Network. Judy is the widow of former Deputy Prime Minister Tim Fisher and a cousin of former member for Indi, Cathy McGowan, who we've also interviewed for this podcast. We talked with Judy about her farm and how climate change is impacting it. We also discussed the National Party. Judy's a member of the National Party and has worked for it in the past. We also talked about how farmers can change the politics of climate change. Have a listen and don't forget to rate and review us if you like the podcast. As always, you can get in touch with us on email or over our social media. Thank you for joining us today, Judy. We'd just like to hear a little bit about your life? Well, I've had a very strange life, I think. Um, it, it, and when I think about it, I, I, I laugh that it certainly hasn't turned out the way I would have ever thought it would. Although one thing probably has turned out the way I wanted it to, which is that I became a farmer. It was a fairly tortuous path to get there and to stay there, but um, that's what I love doing. And uh, it's always been the dominating force in my life. So I suppose I need to start by saying I come from a farming family. 150 years ago, uh, my great-grandmother, an Irish lady, Catherine O'Brien, married an Italian man, Battista de Piazza, and in, they settled in northeast Victoria. So I often laugh at that, that marriage, the Italian-Irish connection, which I think has stayed very strong in terms of the values that have come through our family, through those generations. In fact, Battista de Piazza came out from Italy for the gold rush in Beechworth, but it took him so long to get there that it was over by the time he got there. And he instead set up a, a sawmill in Stanley and eventually decided that the valley he wanted to settle in, of all the valleys he was sawmilling, was Mudjigonga. And he set up a house at, uh, at Mudjigonga where I live now. And the amazing thing for me is that I've, through a very complicated process, I said over 150 years, I've ended up with the home block that they first settled, where their house is that they built in 1878. Were you so, intending uh, on coming back to that property? Uh, look, I, you know, I grew up on this property and, and uh, it was almost, always my love. Fortunately, over the years, the property had got larger and smaller and things had been sold. And as I said, the, the process of succession planning over those four generations has been quite incredible because they, Batista and Catherine had 13 children and in, the lovely way of the 20th century they left a farm to each of the boys and then they left our farm to all the girls combined so 320 acres between the five girls and uh, it took a while for grandma to be canny enough to buy the rest of them out but thank god she did so i've ended up as i said with that very original block so growing up i just was surrounded by this sense of an incredible history uh, I could see everywhere the work that they had done. You know, they, were, they were, had a dairy, they had a stables, they had a piggery. Um, at times there were, you know, 20, 30, at times even 40 people living in this house that now is, you know, lucky to have one or two of us. It was a thriving community on this farm and 
you know, that excites me to, to feel that they've all been there contributing. I still see, you know, the irrigation channels they laid by hand. There's still fence posts cut from the fences, you know. So, as I said, I feel very fortunate to um, be on that sort of farm, family farm. I suppose the reason I farmed, though, I'm the youngest in our family and our parents were very keen for us to all have an education and have some off-farm career. They both had an off-farm career as well because times were very tough in the 60s and 70s. And uh, my old brother and sister went to university but when I was in year 12, my father dropped dead. Just one morning, one Monday morning, uh, unexpectedly of a heart attack. So at 17, I was really the only one free to come home on the farm and I did. And here I am a few years on. So yeah, I started farming at 17 and uh, had to walk into a farm, 1982, middle of a drought, breeding herd of over 200 cows and uh, really having not a clue what I was going to do. And, and uh, so it's been a lifelong journey then to become a farmer and to be educated, particularly as I didn't have dad there to work with. There were so many things I wished I'd known that he had done and, and, and I've had to look to so many other people for that wisdom. Um, my mother certainly farmed, but she came from the city and was a, an occupational therapist actually. So while she's been an incredible farmer and done everything she can do and is as tough as nails, um, it was, I really missed having that mentor, farming mentor. So it's taken a while to get up to speed, but I got there, I reckon. So who did you turn to first when you were learning what to do on the farm, age 17? Well, that was really hard, really, really hard. And, uh, you know, there were some wonderful people sort of offered advice. And I have to be honest and tell you, my uncle, um, Paul McGowan, was... A huge mentor to me. Uh, he was an ag scientist and, and, you know, an ag consultant. And he's also my godfather. And, and he played a very big role in my life from that period, from 17 till, till he passed away. And a few others, you know, stepped up in terms of providing support. But largely, I had to do it on my own. Um, I went, started doing online study. I did a beef cattle course online, which was quite unusual in the 80s. I then did a uh, associate diploma and then I did a degree and then I did a master's. So a very long period of study, I think 12 years in all. How did you do it online in the 80s? That's fascinating. Yeah, really interesting. So I did through the very early days of Charles Sturt University. It was called the Riverina Murray Institute when I first started there. And uh, well, the first course I did, in fact, was through STOTS, which was a strange online learning uh, facility in Melbourne. So, and they had a beef cattle course, which was my, my real start. And I still remember things from that course. I think it's quite funny because it was very much not a hands-on course. It was a you know, reading, but it was, it was a really good foundation course for me. And then instead I went on and uh, Riverina Murray Institute became Charles Sturt Uni and Wagga at Charles Sturt started some very, very early days of distance ed, which uh, is how I kept going. So a mixture of part-time night school and, and distance ed. I stayed connected with the university sector also as my off-farm career lecturing and, and, and now a role at Charles Sturt University. So I said, a very funny pathway. Have you been a farmer that whole time since you were 17? Uh, yeah, so I've always had the farm and eventually, again, through, because dad died suddenly, it took a very long time to work out his estate and, and the farming. We had two farms at that stage. 
and eventually my brother took one farm and, and I had one farm. They, they were farms that needed a lot of work and he's still farming that farm. So um, it's worked out fine. And uh, um, it took, you know, I think it took about 15 years to get through that process, which was very painful. And uh, I've had a couple of periods away from the farm for work. I had three years in Canberra working in politics uh, in two different stints before I was married and my brother looked after my farm while I was away and then when I got married my husband also had a farm but it was in the Riverina and we lived there for I think all up about five years so yeah I've had a couple of periods away but always had the farm um, and can, was very lucky eventually to convince my husband that Mudjigonga was much nicer than Borey Creek not the people the people are but the people at Borey Creek are pretty amazing too but tell you green hills and you know undulating pasture is a little bit nicer than thousands of acres of uh, dry wheat farming. Because your family has been farming that place for so long you'd have such a good understanding of how the climate may have changed during that time. I, I think I do and, and I said I've been there that long too I mean people sort of talk to me I say don't you know look I've been here a long time now I've seen a lot of seasons uh, I'm a, I'm a assiduous record keeper and fortunately my father was a great record keeper. So I have all his handwritten diaries. Um, you know, he never missed a rainfall recording in, first thing in the morning. Uh, we have all the rainfall charts. My husband also was a great record keeper. So I have all that, his farm records as well. But, you know, we have certainly 70 years of, of good farm records that um, can tell us that picture. Of, and for me, it's a, clearly a picture of change. What does that change look like? Is it increased rainfall, decreased rainfall, uh, temperatures? Like, yeah, what do you see there? Yeah, so it, it's certainly, in, and I actually think the last 20 years has been significantly different in, in how we've lived. Um, you know, it's very easy to look back to your childhood and say, oh, I remember we had the gumboots on every day. And remember when we were feeding cows in winter, we couldn't get the tractor around the paddock and all, all that. And, and that's all true. You know, um, you know my kids really haven't had a pair of gumboots since they were, you know, toddlers and it was only because it looked nice, you know. We don't have that sludgy winter that, that we had every year at Mudjigonga. Mudjigonga, the rainfall doesn't look as dissimilar as you'd imagine, but the rain falls at different times and the rain falls heavily when it comes and then you have long periods of dry. My dad used to joke the best thing was a mild winter because our biggest problem on a 40-inch rainfall, and um, sorry about the old terms, uh, is that winter would be so wet, it was very difficult to feed cattle. And, you know, the paddocks would get really pogged up and the gateways would, you know, sometimes were impassable for long periods. You know, those are my memories that doesn't happen now. I can get around in two-wheel drive most of winter, but then you'll get this heavy rain, often in summer, often late spring, um, sometimes when you don't need it. So the rainfall charts don't quite tell you unless you actually analyse when the rain falls and how much of that rain you can actually capture in your soil. How have you changed what you do on farm in response to that changing climate? Yeah, very, a lot of changes. And, and, and that's where I, I, I keep saying I'm a lifelong learner. I mean, it's amazing how much I've learned just in the last 10 years. I joined, you know, I do a lot of courses through, you know, Meat and Livestock and, and Department of Ag. And, and I love my Better Beef group at the moment. Um, when I first joined that, I think it's now about eight years we've been going. Uh, in fact, I had a meeting. We had our first Zoom meeting yesterday, which was quite funny. Um, instead of being standing in a paddock, we were all on screen like the Brady Bunch. But 
you know, there were 13 of us and, and it was great to just talk about what we're doing and get that, that wisdom of others that are farming. That, the thing I missed when I first came home was that wisdom of others, being able to tap into what other people are doing, what's worked for them. I've, I've tried to do as many courses as I can. I keep looking for things. I do webinars. I, I just constantly try to get that information to make decisions. Over the course of just the last 10, 20 years, I've you know, changed when I carve. So we always carved in autumn. We now carve in spring. I've changed the type of feed I give the cattle, um, different feeds at different times. You know, I measure the protein levels. I assess the pasture. Certainly the pasture I grow has changed enormously from my dad's day where he, he pretty much sowed the same thing every year, which was really what was available. Um, I've changed the fertilizer I use. You know, again, I, 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 I test before I do everything. I'm very, I don't just chuck the super out indiscriminately as unfortunately I grew up like every year we had super. That was, that was just part of that cycle. And now I don't, you know, I use whatever the soil needs. I test the soil and then I, you know, try to fix the balance to make it uh, as healthy as possible. Um, I think that understanding that you're really farming soil as much as you're farming animals is, is, is the big mindset change and, and getting to understand that healthy soil makes healthy animals. Healthy soil, you know, makes for a healthy climate, healthy community for that matter. So understanding all those things, they're really big changes in, in the way we farm. And of course, there's the, the obvious one that everyone talks about is the tree planting. So as I said, my great grandparents were sawmillers. So you can imagine there weren't a lot of trees on our place after, after they'd built all their sheds of them and sold the rest. So restoring trees and uh, biodiversity has been a huge focus. I think I've planted maybe 30,000 trees over that time. Um, every year I plant at least 500 trees. Um, I now propagate them myself as well as buying in trees. So I collect the seed from the best trees that I have. I still can't grow them as well as what our nursery suppliers can do, but they now work with our land care group to collect seed in Munchigonga so that we can actually plant trees that are going to survive for the climate that we have. The ones that have survived those dry years, the ones that have survived the changing climate are the ones that I want to plant. What breed of cattle do you have, Judy? Oh, I'm very happy to say that. <laughs> so, um, so I've got Paul Hereford cattle. And uh, the last 10 years, I've had a crossbreeding Angus Paul Hereford um, program. And uh, I've just returned, I'm returning to pure Herefords and going back into a, um, some registered cattle. I, I used to breed bulls, but then it, I decided it was a job for people that are much bigger than I am. My main, my main dream is breeding, breeding stock, you know, females, because I, I, I really love cattle. We hear a lot about the research into kind of low emission, like, low methane emission producing diets like seaweed and those kind of options is that something you're interested in or absolutely. is open to you absolutely so again you know we, we get hung up on problems all the time oh cattle are great methane producers and and i've i've had the luck of you know i've had an off-farm job i chaired a cooperative research center for six years and I see what science can do. I can see what research can do. You know, let's let's throw some resources at actually finding some solutions, and or or at least be able to look at an issue and say it's not bad and good. It's just this is the world we have. We would like a cleaner energy future. We would like to produce less, you know, CO two. We would like to produce less methane. How do we how do we do it? And and there's some really promising research around uh, what you actually feed the animals. 
is, is your farm affected by bushfires and have you done anything there to help adapt to, to just the changing fire seasons as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that is really, in, in terms of the history of our farm, our 150-year history, in 1939, the famous year of the worst drought, worst fires that, you know, my grandmother used to talk about, the whole farm was burnt except for the house and a couple of sheds. It used to be 20 outhouses, outhouses, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But 20 sheds, so there, you know, said stables, dairies, piggeries, like it was like a whole little city in our, on our farm. And they lost a lot of them then. Then in 1968, again, burnt out everything but the house. So, and I was around for that, but very, very small. But my parents certainly, you know, it was a very profound thing in their life. Fires are, you know, they, they loom large in our lives. And then, of course, Black Sad Day, 11 years ago, um, I was very lucky. We kept the house again, survived three times. Um, it, it, it's come so close each time it's burnt, you know, part of the house. Um, we lost the outdoor toilet we lost the laundry but the main house has survived these three major bushfire events 70 percent of our farm was lost in black saturday but it was you know recoverable so again you plan for fire you know that it's a possibility so the way you plant your tree enclosures the way you um, even coming up to fire season you know we all try to get some barriers we graze differently we try to get prevention around the house you know, you sow things that are, uh, even just around the house, you know, I have a green, we have this green patch to protect the house. And if there's nothing else, we, we try to keep it green. But we think about fire and, um, you know, what would you do in a fire? So I have, you know, a fire plan for the cattle, I have a fire plan for ourselves. And we've in fact put in a fire cellar. Uh, Tim's great joy was to um, locate a, a, a wine cellar, a concrete prefab wine cellar from the Barossa and bring it across by truck. And uh, we now have our council approved fire cellar uh, to escape to, because we live at the end of a, a, a 10 kilometer dead end road. So there's no escape in a fire. So it's all about planning and being ready and being confident that unless it's incredibly extreme and sometimes they are, that, that you know what you've got to do on those terrible days. What is your fire plan with the cattle? And how many cattle do you have? So I have 150 breeding cows now. So they're all um, part stud, part commercial. And uh, I have a, again, I've had a lot of time to do this whole farm plan. So I have a, you know, a fence property such that it's very easy to, I have a creek. So the cattle get, get put down into the creek areas so that they have the best chance um, should a fire come through. And it's a very quick pathway for all the paddocks to get down there in the same way there's a pathway for the cattle to get to the um, stockyards on the alternate days where I actually have to do something with them. So, uh, you know, it's all about, again, planning. What, what barriers do you think there are that farmers face in access information? Well, there are a lot of barriers and uh, hopefully if we could get, I mean, at the moment, the barrier is the internet. I can assure you of that. I see the things there, even webinars. I mean, you know, we're on satellite internet, so um, we can't get Telstra internet to, um, so we can't stream things. It's very expensive. If someone says, oh, there's a webinar, you've got to think, oh, can I afford to use an hour of our internet? Because by the end of the month, I'll be out. Because pretty, at the moment, particularly with our boys home, at the moment, we're always running out by the end of the month, you know. So internet is a really big one at the moment. Um, it sounds good to provide these, uh, these opportunities, but you've got to remember not everyone can just stream endlessly. 
Um, but before we had the internet issue, you know, we would physically be getting in the car going to, you know, different gatherings. And, and Mudjigonga has been a wonderful community like that. We have a great hall and, and you know, there's, there's, there's things on all the time. Land care for us has been enormous. Mudjigonga was one of the early communities into land care. We've been going ever since the start. We've had a wonderful land care group for all those years. Uh, we bring speakers in, we run, you know, we meet every month, you know. I was going to say without fail, but I think we actually might have missed, we met occasionally in a bushfire, and, and I think uh, maybe last month, because again, this uh, coronavirus has brought on a whole new way of uh, having to get together. I think there are opportunities, you know, the local council runs things, um, certainly about bushfire recovery, there's always things, there's things about mental health, there's, if you look for it, there are, there, I really believe um, you can find it, but it's your mindset. It's, it's knowing that you never know enough and, and, and understanding that, you know, we're mere, mere humans. We're really not that clever. Um, we know a bit, but the world's far more complex than we can imagine. And in particularly in farming, where you're dealing with, you know, soils, climate, animals, you're dealing with, you know, wildlife, feral pests, you're dealing with technology, you're dealing with machinery. Gosh, you know, you could just be all day, every day. We've talked a bit about the changes you've made on farm in terms of planting trees and other strategies, but have you changed the, your cattle breeding strategies in response to the changing climate? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know about in response to the just or, or just changing generally. climate, but, you know, it, it's, I sometimes think we, we talk about climate and as a sort of separate thing, but it's actually just integrated in everything we do on a farm. You know, climate is part of this changing world and the world has changed in so many ways and will keep doing so just naturally. So it's just a constant adaption. You can't farm the way dad did, grandma did, great-grandma did. You've, you've got to, you know, keep seeing how are things changing. One of the things for me, as I said, has, has been, you know, questioning how we did it in the past and, and learning through your mistakes. So in terms of animals, um, again, we go back to this, you know, I grew up with the annual drenching. Um, you know, we just, something wrong with the cattle, well, they needed a drench. But we never knew what the worms were that were causing the problem. Maybe it wasn't worms after all. Maybe it was minerals. Maybe it was a virus. Maybe it was something else. The notion that you actually try to find the problem rather than just hit it with the first thing that comes into your mind um, has really changed and, and therefore minimise the use of drenches, minimise the use of, you know, toxic chemicals, this is particularly true of spraying weeds, you know, instead of let's just get the most toxic thing we can find to knock that Patterson's curse and, you know, watch it wilt. It's like, well, you know, maybe if we actually crowded it out with a different planting, maybe we could use, you know, something benign, salt, maybe there's a, a, a way of changing the soil structure, you know, some more lime will change, make it more alkaline and some of the, you know, heliotrope might not grow, you know, whatever it might be looking at a problem in different ways to try to protect this incredible asset you have of, of, of this bit of land that you're the custodian of. Judy, you're three years off farm in Canberra. Are you able to tell us a bit about what you're doing up there? Do you really want to know, Cam? Because it wasn't farming, <laughs> I can assure you. Um, I, I'm actually really curious. So again, um, my, my very strange story, um, 17, I'm home on the farm, it's a drought. Things are really awful. I can't really describe how bad they are. I felt completely inadequate in every way. And um, my mother had, got, had to go back to full-time work. 
And I ended up at one point having three part-time jobs. I was picking fruit, I was pulling beers at the Myrtleford Hotel at night, and I was making beds at the motel in Myrtleford in the morning. Like things were very, very tough. Um, uh, and again, I hadn't finished my year 12, so I didn't have a lot to offer. Uh, so, you know, I was writing to trying to get work and jobs and, and I could see the farm, like uh, people talk about droughts. For me, that drought was the one that I think of all the time because I wish I'd known then what I know now. So, you know, the last, now I can manage a drought by planning. You can't, you can never manage it fully, but you know, when your cows are getting thin, you know, you sell them off, even if they're, if then, you know, the market may be low, but you know, it's still better for the cattle to be treated well. And um, if someone else has got grass, let them have the cattle, you know, but in those days, I didn't understand, you know, the whole process of what would happen in a drought. And uh, so we had to watch a lot of cattle die. Uh, we had to destroy cattle. There was, it was a shocking time. And mentally, it, it, it made me very angry, to be honest. Um, I felt no one was listening. I got very involved in the, what we used to call not agri-politics, but agro-politics. Uh, and the, um, it was when the NFF was just starting and, and there was a lot of feeling in the bush about not being listened to. As a young person, I couldn't borrow money. I had no assets to borrow money from. Uh, again, I was too young for anyone to trust me. I was a woman, huh, you know, that was, I, I, I ticked a few boxes they didn't like. Um, and uh, I couldn't expand the farm. I couldn't even pay for what the feed that I needed. So in that anger, I eventually turned to politics and went to a meeting of what was actually then the Young National Party, but sooner after that, I got involved in the National Party because I felt that the only way to really make a difference was to have a say in politics. And uh, all these years on, I, I still feel the same, that you can fluff around the edges and, uh, you know, there's really good organisations to be involved with. But if you can go straight to the heart of talking to government, you've got a much better chance of an outcome. And so I joined the National Party um, and it became a very big part of my life. At 23, I ended up running for our local seat for the National Party. Uh, I ran against a, a Liberal minister, so I didn't have a lot of chance, but um, it was a very good experience. Uh, it was a terrifying experience because, again, I, I had very little, uh, I felt at that time I, I, I didn't have a lot to offer. I wasn't a very confident person. I'd been through, through the mill a bit. Uh, but it did make me interested in politics. And from then I became the federal president of the Young National Party, which in the 80s was actually a very large organisation. Um, we had 10,000 members across Australia. I, I hate to think now whether how many they have, but... I suspect it's hundreds, if, if that. Um, it was a wonderful organisation to learn about politics. So young people, mostly from rural and regional Australia, who, who wanted to understand politics. And there was a lot of opportunity then to, you know, to, to meet with members of parliament and the organisation and to learn and to debate. We had debating competitions, you know, we travelled everywhere. Um, we learnt from each other. It, it was a really great time in my life. So, you know, things just naturally escalated and eventually I was offered a job in Canberra with Ian Sinclair, who was the federal leader of the party at the time. So this is 1988. And it was, again, a fantastic opportunity to work in the leader's office. After that, I was there the night of the, they call it the night of the long knives when both the National Party and, and Liberal Party leaders were 
suddenly deposed and uh, of course we all lost our jobs that's that's a good lesson in politics that you work in politics you're only as, as there because of the person you work for and, and you lose your job automatically but i was very lucky to get a job then at the um, national party federal secretariat um, working for the federal director and that gave me the uh, other side the organizational side because as young national party federal president i'd sat on the man federal management committee of the party so the highest you know decision making body of the party um, and it, it just gave me a very good grounding as to how that whole system worked so then I actually became very disillusioned even even then um, with how the system worked, but I stayed involved for a long time. And uh, again, then I married into the party again through the National Party. And uh, so I've stayed involved, but not as closely involved as I was in those early days. It must have been such an experience being a young woman in politics back in the 80s. They can't, I can't imagine there would have been many women your age in politics back then. Well, I must admit, I was the first female federal president of the Young National Party, and uh, at the time, the youngest. And it was a very unusual thing for a Victorian to become federal president because Queensland Young Nationals were very large. It was the Joe years. It was unusual. It was unusual. And uh, it, it changed a few. I think it was had been 20 years or so. Oh, no, in fact, the, the last Victorian Young National Party president from Victoria had been Pat McNamara. So... There you go. So, yeah, I, I was a bit different and I was always, they used to call me the bleeding heart because I was, you know, always identified with the, you know, not the extreme part of the party, which existed, but um, was only part of what was, you know, I think a much more broad-based party then than it is now. How has the party changed over the years since the 80s when you first got involved to now? And what do you, if it has changed, what do you put that down to? Look, it's changed a lot. I have to say, and I put it down to really a collapse of that branch system that was so strong for the National Party. I think, you know, what the real strength was that, you know, every country town had a National Party branch or a country party branch, you know, there were there was ideas flowing, there was contributions from people from a, a much broader range of backgrounds and, I, and, and you know, said so maybe, you know, women, interestingly, women were quite prominent in the National Party, even though uh, it took a while to get women into parliament. In fact, in the days I was on federal management committee, Shirley McCarrow was the federal president of the National Party. So again, first woman federal president. So there were, and there've been a number of female federal presidents um, since then. So there was this influence of women, although I fought and still do around the idea that the National Party had a, a federal women's section which I always found abhorrent. And if anyone's listening to this, they'll be really upset because it still exists. Uh, but I could never understand why the party needed a federal women's council as opposed to just all of us, because I, I thought they had better ideas than, than, the, than the mainstream council. But uh, anyway, there were things like that used to really get under my skin. But the strength of the party was its broad-based membership. So, it, it, you know, pre-selections happened in the area that that the person was. So it was really, you know, the branch members voted uh, at the pre-selections. They were very close to their local members. They really knew them, they got to know them. You know, to get up for a pre-selection, you really had to talk to all the people that were gonna vote for you in that, in that pre-selection. Pre-selections were always, you know, contested by, you know, a number of candidates. It wasn't seen as just a head office 
you know, we'll pick this person and we'll make sure they get the votes. Uh, but what's happened now is we don't have those branches and the branches aren't flourishing. It, it's all moved on and, and it's become very centralised. So many people have left the National Party that those that are left, you know, are a much more narrow caste group. I feel as though people have been, or pundits have been speculating the Nationals are in decline forever. It's always, you know, the decline of the Nats. But they're still here. They have 16 lower house seats and the, the Liberals need them to form government. Most of our members live in rural Australia. A lot of them are farmers and they really want to see action at a federal level, climate action at a federal level. So what advice could you have for some of our farmers who might want to, to see change in the nationals? What can we do? What can they do? I think you've got to sort of take it back even a, another step is how do we as farmers who support climate action, and as I very much consider myself to be, you know, I, 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 it, you know likes pretty much all the farmers I know are really frustrated at the lack of action on climate change. You know, we just don't get it. Like, it's not some a debating point. It, it's something that we just know is there. We deal with it every day. Just can we get on with it and, and, and you know, make a plan for our future that is a, you know, a, a more sustainable energy uh, future in, in so many ways. In fact, can we have a plan for the future of regional Australia full stop, not just, you know, that incorporates climate change. But... It, I, I know many people are frustrated that there has been this lack of sort of forward thinking on, on a number of counts, on climate change, certainly, on the science and, you know, not understanding the evidence that's just there. You know, it, it's not a debating point. We're way past that. And um, so farmers are really frustrated. They may not, you know, some may not see it as their number one issue. And, and particularly with coronavirus, it's it's probably going to be harder to get that number one issue that it has been for so many of us um, back, you know, at the forefront of thinking. But it has to be part of the future post-coronavirus. It, it's a good time for us to be now talking about it and how do we, you know, prosecute our future um, in a way, given that we've had to strip back so many things at the moment, let's go forward on a different basis. So how do those farmers get heard? How, and it's not just farmers, it's people that live in regional and rural Australia, remote Australia. Um, you know, we, we, there is such a, a force, but we don't know where to direct that energy. And as I've always believed, you direct it as high up as you possibly can. So you can put the same amount of energy into, you know, local meetings and all these things, which are great, but they've got to go somewhere. You know, and I've, I've never been a fan of petitions, I'm sorry. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many petitions I've seen over the years. And, and they're, they're, you know, there wouldn't be a day goes by on my social media I'm not asked to sign a petition. But, you know, show me a petition that worked. Um, you know, it, it's, it, there are more direct ways to make a difference. You have to get to the people that are making the decisions. And in this case, it's the ministers and the government now. Um, you know, we're only early into this term of government. So, you know, we know the people we have to change. And how are they going to change? Well, they're only going to change from pressure. And that pressure has to be constructive. We have to give them a win-win. We have to give them some answers that they can adopt. And that means constant dialogue. So um, those that are frustrated, I'm not saying join the National Party because, you know, that's not what I see as the answer. But I see use use the political system um, to actually talk to people who can make a difference and, and come up with ideas that are palatable, that are 
because you're working within a political prison. There's no point asking for something you know is not possible within that political philosophy or, or prison, but there are things that are possible. And we've been able to see change, rapid change in the last few months with this uh, virus crisis. Um, however, in the longer term, and you know, I've been very lucky to live in the seat of Indi where we've had uh, you know, incredible representation through these rural independents, Cathy and Helen. And as I mentioned earlier, um, my mother is a McGowan, and so Cathy McGowan is my first cousin and has been a, a lifelong mentor to me, probably my greatest mentor in life um, outside, well, not outside anything, probably my greatest mentor in life. Uh, so Cathy, um, you know, I think started to change that conversation and I think rural independents can do that, but in the end, they don't have the power that we need at that top to make really significant, quick difference. Because this is a crisis. This is not something that we can just slowly burn away for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We have to be agile and, and make, make that change. So that's a very long way of saying, I actually believe in the party system, but I think it's failing us. And unless we can find uh, for the well, it I don't know, but I certainly think at the moment the National Party is not representing many farmers uh, who you know would really like to be constructive and and you know have their say, make a difference. You were married to yeah. the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Like his the schedule and the pressure that Tim must have been under is not just his alone; it's shared. How, how did you guys navigate having a family and having a life and managing a farm whilst also having such, such huge commitments, public commitments? Well, I've got to correct you for the start, Cam. I was married to Tim, who was a farmer and he's just a great person in every way. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I just can't describe how special he was and, uh, he, you know, just so lucky to have shared, you know, my life with him. And uh, the fact he then became Deputy Prime Minister, I suppose, was unexpected by anyone, him most of all. And it made our lives quite difficult because he became Deputy Prime Minister in 1996. Well, our boys were born in 1993 and 1996. So, uh, you know, we had a... Um, I was you know, six months pregnant with a two-year-old when he became trade minister, deputy prime minister. Um, he then had to travel for trade all the time. You know, he just was away constantly and, and that was extraordinarily difficult for him and for me. And, and again, I was trying to manage two farms that were 200 kilometres apart. And I, I didn't have a, a big role on his farm. So that's, you know, his family had a partnership there, but I was living at that stage at Bori Creek and commuting to, to Mudjigonga to the farm. I would drive across, you know, three or four times a week. And so, and it was a, it was a 400 kilometer round trip. And I dropped the boys at, later years, dropped the boys at Lockhart at school, go on, get back in time to pick them up. So incredibly difficult years, but you know, you've got to work hard to really achieve anything. And I think Tim achieved a huge amount in that period. They were really, I, I mean, you know, I wish I could sugarcoat and say it was, it was great and we were all very happy in the, in, in the garden, but we weren't. We were both working way too hard and uh, that was what ultimately led to his 
deciding to to retire from politics probably earlier than anyone expected. And and I've seen politics close up, and you know I've lived through the the gun debate of those years, which was probably the worst thing I've ever seen uh, in terms of personal abuse and pressure. Uh, I think I've seen you know in politics the very best and the very worst of humankind. Uh, and um, you know you've got to you've got to be very resilient. It's not a career for everyone. That seems like a good note to wrap it up, but actually we haven't touched any of on any of your autism advocacy work. Again, you know, life has taken me down some very strange pathways and uh, one, I suppose, uh, fork in the road was when our oldest son was diagnosed with autism. And again, living on a farm, and, and this is back in, you know, 1999, so let's see now, he's 26, 23 years ago, uh, we didn't even have an early intervention service. We had no, uh, there was nothing that he could uh, access in rural and regional Australia to um, help him along the pathway and to, you know, maximise his chance of, of um, you know, living that very happy, fulfilled life. So it set me on a path of advocacy for autism. And I sort of left, <laughs> I think my knowledge of politics made that uh, easier for me because I thought, well, you know, there's not a service, so why not do people understand, you know, and, and people would say, oh, the politicians, they're not interested. And so, but have you told them, you know? And if I had not had a child with autism, an autistic son, I wouldn't have known anything about it. So how can you assume that our members of parliament all understand what the needs are? You've got to actually, you know, get together and come up with some policies and talk to them and say, you know, these are our needs. You know, if we invest money at the early years, we're going to have better outcomes, sell it as a win-win. And, and that's what I did. And I was very lucky to actually, um, you know, be very involved in that very first uh, Helping Children with Autism package, which was a, a breakthrough package of John Howard announced, you know, out of the cycle that um, after some meetings with, you know, our group, uh, that, you know, all children would actually have access to... Um, some support after diagnosis. We're now still working on getting diagnosis uh, earlier and earlier because we know the earlier diagnosis, the earlier the intervention, the earlier the better the outcomes. So you know we're not, we're not quite there, but I do know that now when I say I have an autistic son, the reaction is quite different to what it was 20 years ago, and people realise that that autism is a different way of thinking. It's not a bad or a good. It's not wrong or right. It's just different. So that's been a great, great journey for me. What an extraordinary life you've had, Judy. It's fabulous yeah, to hear about it's it. It's been so great hearing about it, actually. No, I don't know, but thank you. It's um, lovely talking about it, actually. I'm in the farm. I said, I'll, I'll talk about the farm forever. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take a big breath about politics, but, um, you know, farm, yes, yeah. Um, so thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh.